Uh, well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we'll be covering uh, the entire chapter this morning. And this is the, the last chapter. This is the fifth uh, week in our study of Jonah called Runaway Grace. And the last chapter, as we're going to see this morning, is actually pretty remarkable. Um, we might think, at least I would think, that after Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh, and he preaches this, this God-inspired message, and the people from the greatest to the least repent, fall on their knees, as it were, in brokenness before God, we might expect kind of a Disney-like ending. Cue the music, start the celebration, everyone's dancing and, and praising the Lord, especially Jonah, would make for a great musical, perhaps, if you're into that. This is the way that I would expect this thing to end, but that's not what happens. One biblical scholar says, of all the books of the Bible, Jonah has the most unexpected and overlooked final chapter. Quitting Jonah after three chapters would be kind of like walking out of the Avengers movie three quarters of the way through. Now, I haven't seen it, so I don't, I'm not going to offer any spoilers this morning. But I have been told that the last part of the movie is enough to make a grown man cry. And I've had grown men tell me they cried through it. So it would be, quitting Jonah would be like walking out three quarters of the way to, quitting Jonah after the third chapter would be like leaving a baseball game at the end of the eighth inning with the score tied. You, you know that you're going to miss something. There's something to be missed by leaving. And here at the end of chapter three, Jonah has gone into the city. He's witnessed God do this absolute miraculous thing of bringing these hardened, violent, bloodthirsty Ninevites to brokenness. From again, from the greatest to the least, from the king to the peasants, all the residents of Nineveh cry out to God. And Jonah is thrilled, of course, right? I mean, Jonah is elated. Jonah praises God for this incredible act of this miracle of God. Well, not exactly. Let's look at the text together, Jonah chapter 4. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 4. Here's the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful we just sang these same words, didn't we? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to, do, to be angry? When a world-class musician perfectly plays a beautiful and euphonious piece of music, and at the end, he gets a standing ovation, or she gets a standing ovation. Would that musician ever be angered by that? If a professional golfer takes the tee on a short par three and plops one right up next to the green, in fact, it actually rolls into the cup for a hole in one, and the crowd goes crazy, would he ever be angry at that? If an architect designs this incredible functional, uh, elaborate bridge. And the citizens of, of that area, along with the press, they hail him as a brilliant architect. Would he ever be angry at that? Here we have Jonah, who preaches the sermon of his life. 
The people respond positively to it all the way down to the littlest. People broke and people take it in. They respond in this incredible way. And Jonah is so angry about it that he wants to die. He's so angered by their response that he asks the Lord to take his life. Now this is, there's an iceberg here. Yeah, there's an iceberg and, and there's so much underneath as we're going to see as we move forward. Nineveh is broken. The whole city is beside themselves with grief over their sin. And more importantly, they believe God. They, they, they don't have a lot of faith, right? But they have faith. What they have is actual faith. They believe that God can be trusted. They believe that this God, who is actually not their own God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, they believe that he is a God who may show them mercy. And in fact, he does show them mercy. He's merciful to them. They pleaded with God to have mercy on them, and they believed that he would, and he did. The last part of Jonah 3 that we saw last week tells us, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So they repent, and God is merciful to them, and Jonah says, see, this is exactly what I told you would happen. Like, I knew this was happening, God. I knew this about you. You would be merciful to them. Now, I want to pause there for a minute for a couple of reasons, uh, because there is a, a fairly deep theological uh, issue at play here, and also because I've gotten several questions about this. So, you know, one of the things that preaching is is shepherding. So I want to try to respond to some of the questions I've got about this idea of God relenting, God saying he would do something and then not doing it. I had a mentor who would say to me somewhat regularly, let's let our theology help us here. And what he meant by that was not only does what we believe about God, which is all that theology is, what we believe about God, not only does that, is that the most important thing about us, but it also has the greatest impact on how we live and how we treat others. It also has the, the, the greatest impact on how we experience joy. So he would say to me, uh, again, let us, let's let our theology help us here. And so I want to consider just for a moment this, this theological concept of the impassibility of God. God's unchanging nature. How could God say that he was going to do something and then not do it? Does he go back and forth on matters? Is he a, a, a mercurial God who is blown along by the winds of change? Does he actually change his mind? Historically, going back to the first century, Christians have believed and, and asserted that God is unchangeable in his being. In other words, God is constant in his character. His character never changes. And we have to say that because if we believe that God is perfect, which we do, and he changes, then he can only get worse, right? You can't improve upon perfection. So, again, throughout the last several millennia, we, there's been this understanding that God is unchanging in his character. And the biblical evidence to support this is overwhelming, God makes it clear himself in Malachi chapter 3. He says this about himself. For I, the Lord, do not change. These are the, the words of the Lord himself. Pretty straightforward. God says, I don't change. Numbers 23, we read this. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Again, by a series of rhetorical questions, God is saying, look, I don't change. Nothing about me changes. In the New Testament, James 1, we read, 
Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. That's from the New Living Translation. So, so God doesn't change in his character. In fact, the part that I read said that he doesn't even change his mind. So, so how do we make sense of this passage where it says God says he's going to do something, but then God relented and did not do what he, would, what he said he would do? Well, here's the deal. God was not surprised that the Ninevites repented. In fact, he knew they would. And he knew exactly how he would respond to their repentance in a way that is completely consistent with his unchanging character. When God said to the Ninevites through Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, this was not set in stone. This was, in fact, a warning. This was an offer to repent, which God actually knew that they would accept. God didn't promise to do something and then recant. He provided Nineveh a chance to repent. And if you read the Old Testament, you see that when, whenever the prophets predict gloom and doom and misery, there is in that prediction always an implied contingency. Now, we don't always see the word if there, but there's always an implied contingency. That is to say, if you do this, then you'll be spared. I, I used the example a couple weeks ago of when a parent says, I'm going to put you in time out. And then they say, one, two, three, and so on. And implied in that is, I'm going to put you in time out unless by the time I count to five, you, you do what, I, what I'm telling you to do. And then they don't put the child in time out. It's kind of like in, in real estate. You may, say, you may say, I agree to pay a certain price for this house. But you know that there are implied contingencies. The, past, the, the, the house has to pass inspection. So when God makes a prediction and people repent, God always responds according to his perfect and unchanging nature. In fact, if, if you're having a hard time with it, God says exactly that through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18 says this, God says this, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And at the, if at the same time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. God is not changing. God is unchangeable. He's not changing when he relents of a predicted disaster. He's simply acting in a way, again, consistent with his perfect and unchanging character. Now, there's, there's a lot more that I could say about that. If this really interests you, I wrote an article on this maybe 10 years ago. You can send me an email, I'll send you the article. I didn't know how much to get into that, but I did want to at least look at that because I've gotten some questions. But let me kind of summarize what I'm saying here with our first point, and here's what it is. God's gracious character never changes, which means that he can always be trusted. His gracious character never changes, which means that he can always be trusted. A couple of years ago, my nephew, who was 18 at the time, uh, proposed to his girlfriend and asked her to, uh, to marry him. And 
he got a lot of flack from a lot of people for being impatient, uh, for being uh, stubborn, uh, for, for not waiting until they were both established. A lot of people said, yeah, you got to wait till you're established financially and career-wise and so on. And so one night uh, he was visiting and we were going ice skating. It wasn't just the two of us. That would have been kind of awkward. Um, if it was just the two of us, we would have gone uh, axe throwing or something, but it was like a group of people. <laughs> And so there was a group of us, and we went, we went ice skating, and, and there for a moment my cousin, or my nephew rather, pulled me aside, and he said, Uncle John, what, what do you think? Like, do, you, do you think I'm being foolish? Am I being impatient here? Should I, should I wait until I'm more established? And I said, well, you know, I don't know his, his, his bride-to-be that well, but I spent a little bit of time with her. I said, do you, do you know that she loves Jesus? So there's no doubt in my mind, she, she, she deeply loves Jesus. Do you know that she loves the bride of Christ, the church? Does she love the church? Well, she, she absolutely loves the church. So does she exhibit the fruit of repentance? In other words, does she say, I'm sorry? Is she humble? Can you see the fruit of repentance at work in her life? Absolutely. I said, well, if you both want to get married and you have a plan for your future, then I say, why not? You know, she loves Jesus. You, you, you've, you've checked the boxes biblically. Why not? He said, but people keep telling me that, that we're so young that we're going to change and that I will change. I said, of course you're going to change. Of course you're going to change. When, when your Aunt Janine and I got married, at this point it was, what, 23 years ago, we're very different than we are now. We've changed a lot. I, I had a full head of hair. I was gloriously handsome. And I said, look at me now. I mean, I said, look, you're going to change, right? People change. We, we always change. I said, but why not change together? Change is a, it can be a scary thing. It's a scary thing because we as broken humans, we don't always know what to expect from other people over time. How will they change? And we don't even really know what to expect from ourselves. We may even fear how we will change over time. The things we'll lose interest in. The things, the sinful things we may become interested in. So change can be a scary thing. Well, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And because he never changes, we don't have to worry. What's God going to be like in 10 years? What's God going to be like in 100 years? We don't have to worry. He never changes so he can be trusted. He will always be what he's always been. And he will always respond to sin the same way, repentance, worship, prayer, in a way that his holy character must respond to these things. It was the unchanging nature of God's compassion, this, this grace, or really the fact that such wicked people received his grace that drove Jonah to the point of wanting to die. And he said, God, just take my life. And the Lord said, do you really have the right to be angry over this? And Jonah didn't answer. Now look at verses 5 through 11. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, could, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. For such a respected prophet, Jonah's a little pouty, isn't he? I mean, he goes out, he goes away from the city, he builds a fort so he can kind of sit under the fort and, he, and he's going to wait and see what's going to happen to this great city. And he's angry. He really, actually, he's more than pouty. He, he's, he's outraged by what he sees. Now, normally, when someone has a meltdown of this magnitude, there are a variety of things going on here, right? We see a kid in a grocery store pulling on her mother's shirt kicking her legs, screaming at the top of her lungs, lunging for something in the aisle. There are probably a few factors at work. She may be tired. She may be hungry. She may be angry at hearing the word no, and so it just put her into a rage. She may just really, really want that candy bar and believe if I don't have that, I can't keep on living. There are probably multiple things going on. And the same is true with Jonah's outburst here. There, there are probably multiple reasons. One of those reasons is actually nationalistic pride, the idolatry of country. Jonah says, it's not what I said. Is this not what I said to you when I was over there in my country? I knew this would happen. I knew you would do this. Jonah's concerned that God's grace for the Assyrians will not bode well for his own country. In fact, uh, the Nineveh, Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, uh, Jonah's own country, Israel, would have been much better off, politically speaking, if God had destroyed Nineveh. So he's a little concerned about what's going to happen now because God has spared this city. Jonah's love for his country is stronger than his desire to see lost people reconciled to God. But the text makes it clear that the central issue with Jonah here is Jonah's self-righteousness. He would rather die by his own admission than see a people so vile, so wicked, so evil, so idolatrous receive God's mercy. And the only way that we can feel that way about someone else is to actually believe that I'm not so wicked. I'm not so vile. I'm not so idolatrous. See, Jonah thought there were sinners and then there were real sinners. And he was part of the former category. Of course, he would say, look, everybody's messed up. I know everybody's messed up. Everybody's fallen short. Everybody has missed out on God's standard of perfection, right? Nobody's perfect. He would admit that. But then there are those who are just really, really bad, really wicked. Jonah's problem was that he had a poor understanding of sin. And his self-righteousness caused him to loathe really bad people who receive God's extravagant mercy. Here's our second point. A low view of sin leads to a lack of compassion toward others. Compassion, which is sometimes referred to as pity in the, in the scriptures, compassion is, is a, is a white-hot and active concern for those who are hurting. It's a passionate and active concern for those who are hurting. But how can we be passionate and actively concerned about those who are hurting, if in our hearts we're saying, that's just what they deserve. That's what they deserve. 
They're terrible people. Of course they're going to get that. Of course they're going to receive that. They're terrible. If our view of sin is not biblical and we see ourselves in a better light than we should, then we'll be inclined toward harshness, condemnation, and judgment toward others rather than compassion for those who are hurting. And one of the ways that this unbiblical view manifests itself, in fact, I would say to you probably the most common way, the most prominent way, is we look at sin as primarily horizontal rather than vertical. Now, we, the Bible does, re, does present sin as, it recognizes the horizontal nature of sin, that is person to person. And even does so in this passage, you know, they sinned against other people. But the Bible consistently presents sin as ultimately a vertical offense against God. It's person to God. Now, the Bible makes this clear, beautifully clear in a couple of stories. One of them is the story of Abraham. You know, Abraham was a, on, the, on the road a lot, and in the course of his travels, he comes into, there are a couple times where he actually had to, he tried to pass off his wife uh, to somebody else by pretending that his wife was his sister. He was so concerned about the kings of the countries that he would visit that he was afraid, well, they're going to they're gonna kill me and they're going to take my wife. She was very beautiful. And so he started to tell people, this is, this is not my wife, this is my sister. Well, well, one of the kings, Abimelech, he was the king of Gerar, he actually takes Sarah, says, oh, well, that's your sister, then okay, I'm going to take her. He takes her to be with him. And the Lord appears to, to Abimelech in a dream and told him that if he had slept with Sarah, he would die because Sarah was another man's wife. Now, Abimelech, he didn't know this. He thought this was Abraham's sister. And so he pleaded his case with the Lord, and the Lord actually acknowledged his innocence in the matter. And Genesis 20, uh, verse 6 says, Then God said to Abimelech in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from what? From sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Surely Abimelech would have sinned against Abraham by sleeping with Abraham's wife. But God says, no, if you did that, you were actually going to sin against me. But I've kept you from doing so. There's, a, of course, another one that probably comes to your mind when you think about this is the, uh, the story of King David, who actually sleeps with Bathsheba and then kills, has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed, sends him off into battle on the front line, so he'll be killed right away, and ends up taking Bathsheba. And then and he's in this terrible place of spiritual guilt, and he cries out to the Lord in Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We say, wait a second, that I mean, he definitely sinned against Uriah. He had Uriah killed. And he certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He took her to be his own. So certainly he sinned against a lot of people. But David says, no, I'm, you're the one I sinned against, God, against you and you only. Well, what he's saying, what he understood was something that we often miss. Every sin, every sin is first and foremost a sin against a holy God. Envy is a sin against God. Lust is a sin against God. Adultery is a sin against God. Lying is a sin against God. Pride is a sin against God. All sin is sin against God. And what makes sin so offensive, so egregious, so heinous, is not even first what we do, but the one against whom we do it. You know, we're more tempted to sin, to commit sins, when we believe they're relatively insignificant. A white lie? Look, it's just a white lie. Just a white lie. 
No big deal. A little cheating on an exam, that's no big deal. But when we come to see that all sin, including the so-called little sins, are actually an offense against a righteous God, we realize that even these sins are actually, according to J.I. Packer, sins of the deepest dye. Packer says this, there are no small sins against a great God. And sin is not simply doing bad things, but loving things more than we love God, cherishing things more than we cherish God, delighting in things more than we delight in God. David Pallison says, the Bible's view of sin certainly includes the high-handed sins where evil approaches full volitional awareness. That is, we, we know what we're doing is wrong. We keep doing it anyway. But sin also includes what we simply are and the perverse ways we think, want, remember, and react. See, Jonah's problem was he didn't really see sin, his own sin, as anything compared to the sins of the wicked Ninevites. And he, he thought, you know, by comparison, he was actually a very, very good person. His sin was more palatable. His sin, in his own mind, was more acceptable. And because of that, he was in full judgment mode. He didn't care if a whole city of people whom he considered much more sinful perished. And here's the thing, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're always going to struggle with self-righteousness. I hate to admit it, but I'm always going to struggle with it. We struggle with thinking better of ourselves than we should as fleshly creatures, what Paul calls us, those who carry around the baggage of the sarks, the Greek with that flesh. We're always going to be inclined to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and be sparing in our grace toward others. I was just reading this week a secular social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt concluded after years of research and experience very simply, self-righteousness is the normal human condition. And this is, in fact, this is what Jesus said over and over, didn't he? This is why he preached the Sermon on the Mount, because of the self-righteousness of us and the religious people. Um, I also read this week, um, I was looking at ESPN.com, and I read uh, the, the, reti the, the impromptu retirement of NFL linebacker Chris Long. Chris Long um, was the son of Howie Long, a longtime ex-Hall of Fame NFL player. And when he retired via Instagram, he got all kinds of praise. Oh, this is a great man. This is a remarkable humanitarian. This is a guy that, that is deserving of our praise. And I was so, I was really struck by what he said. Chris Long said this, who's not a Christian as far as I know. He said, I think everybody knows they're not as good of a person as they portray. I think if we are honest with yourself, everybody has a lot of work to do. We're always going to struggle with self-righteousness, seeing ourselves better than we are. And unless that is held in check and confronted by the Holy Spirit, we will find ourselves being judgmental and condemning, which not only dishonors God, but it also robs us of any compassion we might have for others. Now, let me, let me illustrate the confusion this way. We tend to look at this relationship between God and man this way. We do our good works for God, and when we sin, we sin against our fellow man. So our good works are done for the benefit of God, and our sins are actually done committed against others. But that's actually the opposite of the way the Bible speaks. According to the scriptures, we actually sin against God primarily, and we do our good works for the benefit of man, not the benefit of God. 
As Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. We do good things for fellow man. Right? We, we don't do our good works for God. We do our good works primarily for the benefit of our fellow man. This is why Jesus would say, if you give a, cold, a cup of cold water to a person who's suffering, a person in need, you've actually served me by doing it, by caring for, serving our fellow man. But when we get that mixed up, we believe we're only sinning against man, that it's easy to, to dismiss our sin as something, well, it's not really that big of a deal. And if we look at our good works as something we do to God, it's a way, well, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our compassion. He doesn't need anything. So we fail to see just how, how much we need to actually serve those around us. We were created to do good works. We were redeemed to do good works, not for salvation, but from salvation. And those good works are motivated by compassion. But if we don't have compassion, we won't be inclined to do good works toward anyone else. The whole paradigm is messed up. What's the solution? Well, it's not only a correct or biblical view of sin, but it's also a correct view of God's mercy and grace. And God makes this point to Jonah by way of object lesson. Jonah goes out, sits at the edge of the city to watch what happens, and the Lord appoints, we're told, which is a, a word that's in reference to his sovereignty again. The word appoints a plant to grow up very rapidly and to cover Jonah's head so that the sun doesn't beat down on it, so that the wind doesn't uh, blow against his face. And I absolutely love this because, I mean, to me, it just shows the tenderness of God. Have you ever prayed about something and, and you thought, at the end, you, know, you felt kind of guilty, like, I don't know, should I really have brought that before the Lord? I've done that before. I prayed about something, and I thought, I don't know, like, is that, but why would I bring that to the Lord? I mean, is that, does he really care about that? Does he care about something that small? Well, well here's a, a beautiful answer. God cares about every detail of our lives. He cares about everything we go through. He's invested in us. He delights in giving us good things. And he takes the initiative to bless us, not because we deserve it, but because of his gracious character. Here, God is so concerned about his pouting prophet that he determined, verse 6, to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah is exceedingly glad over this plant. There's a, there's a beautiful word play that, that takes place in the Hebrew language here. Um, when Jonah sees the people of Nineveh turn to God, the text tells us that he was exceedingly angry. Literally, he was angry with a great anger. And yet when a plant grows over his head to shade him from the sun, he is, same Hebrew sort of, he is exceedingly joyful. He rejoices with great joy. He's so happy about the plant that he's overcome with joy. But when thousands of people repent, the very thing that, that God says brings the most rejoicing in heaven, he's actually exceedingly angry. He's furious. It just shows you the sort of self-righteousness caused by a low view of sin. Well, God wants to do much more than just comfort Jonah physically. He wants to correct Jonah of his misunderstanding of sin and his, and his unbiblical view of God's compassion. And so the next day, God appoints a worm to eat the plant and destroy it, take away Jonah's shade, and God also appoints this fierce wind to blow. And so now you've got the combination of the brisk wind and the beating sun. And Jonah is furious again. He says, all right, God, look, just kill me already. Please, just take my life. 
And God asked Jonah the same question he'd asked previously the previous day. He says, do you really have the right to be angry right now? And now Jonah's more bold than he was before. He says, yeah, actually, I do. I do have the right. I'm pretty angry right now. I'm so angry that I'd like to die. And God says, you care so much about that stupid plant. Right? He didn't say stupid, but that's the tone here. You care so... You didn't water the plant. You didn't create the plant. You didn't feed the plant. You didn't do anything with the plant. But you care so much about this stupid plant that you didn't have anything to do with. Shouldn't I care about an entire city of people who bear my image, who are so morally messed up, they don't even know their right from the left? I know some of you are thinking, God cares about his creation. I know that. I believe that. Right? This plant wasn't stupid. But the thing is, he's saying, look, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to this city of people. Shouldn't I care about them? It's a rhetorical question. God's making a statement here by asking a question. And it's our final point this morning. It's this. The way out of our self-consumed misery is to see the glorious salvation of our compassionate God. Jonah is miserable. He's so consumed with self-pity and self-righteousness. That's all he can think about. The wind and the sun. And God says, no, you've got to see things from a bigger picture. You have to see something of my glory and my compassion and my mercy. Because how is it? I mean, how easy is it for us to make life all about ourselves? So much so that we're concerned with what we're having for dinner, the temperature of our living room, the speed of our internet, that we show no concern or very little concern for a world that's dying apart from Christ. The other day my kids were complaining about something and I said to them, this is a real first world problem that you're complaining about. In some of the developing countries that I've been in where they struggle with third world conditions, people are wondering how they're going to eat where their next meal is going to come from. And you're concerned about whether or not your shirt was washed with fabric softener. This is a real first world problem. My kids didn't say anything. Later that same night, though, we were all together sitting on the couch and we're trying to watch a movie on Netflix and the movie kept pausing for the Wi-Fi to buffer. So I yelled to no one in particular, what's wrong with the internet? I, I pay for this every month. Why, why get this buffering thing there? One of my kids said to me, gee, Dad, that sounds like a real first world problem you're wrestling with. The speed of the internet. How do they deal with that in other countries? He was being a smart aleck, but he was right. I was more concerned about the, the wheel in the middle of my screen, which was driving me crazy at that moment, than I was actually concerned about a lot of other things. And this is the way that my own sinful heart tends to hove. It's the direction that my heart goes in. What's the remedy? Again, it's looking to the compassion of God. A compassion so rich and a grace so shocking that it moved this same God to provide a salvation for terrible sinners like me. Talk about compassion. Talk about a passionate and active concern for those who are hurting. Here we are, broken people, living on a broken planet with other broken people. No hope for ourselves and our own ability. And we're in the condition we're in because of our own sinfulness. Sure, it was the sin of our first parents, but we echo their decision every day. 
And yet God didn't leave us where we are. He could have. He was so moved that with compassion that he sent his son to endure a cross for us. It's a grace that's so stunning that, that Paul calls it foolishness to those who are perishing. Why would this make sense to anybody? Why would God send his only son to die for a people who not only didn't deserve it, but didn't even want to be rescued? It's foolishness. It makes no sense. And yet, it's a grace and a mercy so extravagant, so stunning. It's a grace that moved God to cover all of our sins on the cross so that through faith in the person and work of His Son, we could be declared righteous before Him. Righteous before God. Even the sin of our own self-righteousness was covered on the cross. God is for us in Christ this morning. If you put your faith in Jesus, God is for you. He is working things out for your good. Of course we can't see it all. There's mystery there. He's working out things for His glory and our good. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the book of Jonah wants us to turn around and see God in full stride with all His sovereignty and all His mercy running after us, constantly coming after us, to have us as his own, to do good to us as his children, and to use us as vessels of his mercy. The book of Jonah is the answer to the questions. Can I outrun God? Does God's grace have limits? Does God's grace ever run out? The answer to all these questions is a resounding no. And when we start to let the depth of God's compassion wash over us, we start to allow the reality of His grace to soak in. The same God who promises He will never let us go. He will always hold us fast. We let that grace soak in. It moves us to compassion toward others. It moves us to brokenness and humility in our own lives. And it moves us to worship this same God who did not leave us in our destitute state, but sent His Son for our redemption. Let's pray.